0: Scripture reading this morning is going to come from Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, we'll be starting in verse 16, verse 16 through 21, Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing.
1: It's great to see you this morning. I hope that you had a happy Thanksgiving holiday. I know we've got a number of visitors and some that are uh, back for the holidays. You've come home because this is where your family lives. This is where maybe you grew up. I wanna share with you this morning a picture of Jesus, kind of like looking through a family photo album, a picture of Jesus and I want you to appreciate him even more at the end of this lesson than you do right now. I want you to think about the kind of ministry and the kind of courage and determination that Jesus came to involve himself in. And when you think about the way that Jesus lived and you think about the courage and the boldness with which he, he preached to people, it'll help us to understand more about God's will for our lives. You know, every one of us struggles with preconceived ideas, preconceived notions. Right now, all of you have in your mind some preconceived ideas about how things ought to be, about um, who God loves and appreciates, about what God wants to do in the world. And everybody has these preconceived notions, these, these ideas that we have in our heads and our minds. And one of the reasons why people had trouble with Jesus, and one of the reasons why people today have trouble with Jesus, is because we hear from him and we see in the Word of God that he's got a mission that he's trying to accomplish, but it doesn't fit with our preconceived ideas. It doesn't fit with the way we think things ought to be. And because that's true, A lot of people reject Jesus out of hand. I'm not going to follow him. I'm not going to obey his word because what he's saying and what his word says doesn't fit with what I think things ought to be like. This was a problem from the very beginning for Jesus. Open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking together this morning at verses 16 all the way down through verse 30. Luke chapter 4 verses 16 through 30. And the title of the lesson is, Preaching to the Home Crowd. You may or may not know that Jesus was raised in a small town in the north part of Israel called Nazareth. And when you look at what this passage tells us about, it's at the very beginning of the book of Luke. We're in chapter four of Luke and none of Jesus' ministry and preaching has really been emphasized until now in the book of Luke. It's talked about his birth and it's talked about him growing up and it's talked about his baptism in Luke chapter three, his temptation in the wilderness. But now Luke wants to present Jesus as on a mission and he starts in Nazareth. He starts with his home and with his family. The Bible says in Luke chapter four verse 16 that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And interestingly enough, I wonder what that must have been like for Jesus because he's gone out and he's been with John the baptizer down at the Jordan River. He's been baptized and now he comes home and he's been going around and telling people that he's the Messiah and he's been doing miracles. But now he goes home and tomorrow is the Sabbath day and I would assume he went home to where Mary lived. I would assume that's where his brothers and his sisters lived. By the way, Jesus had brothers and sisters according to Mark chapter six and verse three. And I wonder if on that night before the Sabbath, I wonder if they ask him, are you going to stand up and read in the synagogue tomorrow? And Jesus said, well, I'm going to stand up and read in the synagogue tomorrow. Well, what are you going to talk about? What passage? Well, you'll just have to wait and see, maybe Jesus said. But the Bible tells us that Jesus very deliberately goes and reads from a certain passage. In fact, let's start with that. As you look at Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and following, you're going to see that this passage begins with an emphasis on a prophecy. And when you look at what Jesus does in verses 16 and 17, Luke wants for you to understand that this is very, very formal. Um, In 1953, they brought cameras into Westminster Abbey in England because they wanted to televise for the very first time the coronation of a queen, Queen Elizabeth II. And they brought cameras into the abbey where she was being uh, crowned and everything was very formal, very ritualistic. Apparently, the country of Great Britain is going to do this again with King Charles at some point in the future. And people tuned in by the millions because this was the formal announcement, the coronation of a monarch. And people had never seen this before with their own eyes. And what Luke is telling you in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, if you look at the way that the language reads, look, Jesus came to Nazareth and he went to the synagogue and he stood up to read. And the Bible says the scroll of Isaiah was given to him in verse 17 and he unrolled the scroll and he deliberately found the place where it is written. All of this is telling you so that you have in your mind's eye what takes place. Luke could have just said Jesus stood up and he started reading in Isaiah 61, but it doesn't say that. It says Jesus walked into the synagogue, and He stood up to read, and He very slowly and deliberately found the place in the scroll of Isaiah where He wanted to read, and that's how He began to read. And at the end of this, after He reads the prophecy, look at verse 20, it says, when He's finished reading, He rolled up the scroll, and He gave it back to the attendant, and He went and sat down. And then in verse 21, He began to say to them, everything about this is deliberate, This is the announcement of the mission of the Messiah. This is Jesus in his hometown preaching a sermon about who he is and what he's come to do. And what's interesting about all this is this is a sermon that nearly got him killed. At the end of this, people wanted to drive him off a cliff as we'll see in a moment. But the announcement of his mission, and not only that, but when you look at the passage, you'll notice that it's important for us to understand Jesus was from the very beginning aware of what he had come to do. In Luke 19 10, Jesus says, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If you've ever read the history of politics, political leaders, they all maybe have kind of a a mission in mind. They have a vision, but a lot of times it kind of evolves over time. You think about people that become president, or you think about people that become rulers of other countries and how they came to the realization that this was where they were going to end up. And in most cases, nobody starts out saying, you know, I'm going to be president one day. They just have a cause and an ideology and they want to follow that and they want to pursue that. Not Jesus. Jesus knows from the very beginning, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's what he says when he reads from Isaiah in verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, this is my mission. God has anointed me, he's given me something to do and I know exactly what I'm here for and why I've come to this world. I want you to appreciate about Jesus that from the very beginning he knew that he came to this world to seek and to save lost souls. He came for you and me. And there was nobody and there was no agenda that was going to keep him from that. There was nobody that was going to dissuade him or say, you know, you really shouldn't do it that way. From the very beginning, this was his plan because it was his heavenly father's plan. And it's also interesting as you read Jesus is gonna quote, we're gonna talk about this in a moment, verses 18 through 19 in Luke chapter four. He's reading from Isaiah, but look at what it begins with. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he, the Lord, has anointed me. How did Jesus come to be the Messiah? How did he come to be the one that's gonna save the world from sin? Jesus did not claim this title for himself. He did not come and say, you know, I think I would be a good candidate to be the Messiah. I think I would be a good candidate to save people from their sins. He didn't do that. Rather, the language that he uses by prophecy is, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. God has anointed me. He didn't claim it for himself. This was a mission that was given to him in his own language by his Heavenly Father. Jesus shows us what it's like to be humble. Even though he is the son of God by nature, by virtue, by the, the, by the person who he is, he's the son of God. He waits for his heavenly father to anoint him and to say, you're going to be the son of God. You're going to be the Messiah. He did not claim the title for himself. Rather, he allowed God to bestow that title upon him. Just stop right there and put your finger in Luke 4. And I want you to turn very briefly to Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. The Hebrews writer makes this same idea, this same statement about the nature of Jesus and his ministry. He's talking about Jesus being a high priest. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 4, the writer says... Hebrews five, verse four, speaking about being a high priest, he says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also verse five, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's the Hebrews writer telling us? that Jesus didn't go around claiming roles and titles for himself. Rather, he humbly waited and submissively obeyed his father until his father said, you are, the, you are a high priest. You are the Messiah. You are the one who's going on this mission. When you think about who Jesus is, you need to appreciate that Jesus waited for God to bless him and exalt him and to extol him to give him the mission that he had. That's an important concept when you think about the identity of Christ. Now back to Luke chapter 4, if you would. As we think about this prophecy, all of this buildup that Luke gives us about Jesus going to Nazareth and standing up to read, it says in verse 16. I want you to know that when the people of God come together, we need to read. Read. And we don't need to read philosophy and current events and the news of the day. We need to read from the scriptures. And the very first thing that Jesus wanted to do when he went home to the synagogue was to read from the scriptures. This was tradition, this was custom, but this is necessary for the people of God. It is the word of God that gives us faith, Romans 10, 17. It is the word of God that builds us up, Acts 20, verse 32. It is the word of God that people need to hear so that their souls can be fed and enriched. And when Jesus went home to the synagogue, he wasn't interested in telling a bunch of cute stories. He wanted to read from the scriptures. And when he read from the Scriptures, he started in Isaiah. And he went deliberately, it says, he found the place where it was written. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2 is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, if you could just in your minds, I see Jesus standing in front of a synagogue, much like the, the room here, and the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because God has anointed me to do what, Jesus? What's He anointed you to do? Four things, to proclaim good news to the poor. To proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Four groups of people, four groups of, of people that are in need are mentioned here. The poor, the captives, the blind, and the oppressed. Jesus is saying that his ministry, his role in this world is to come and to help people who are in desperate straits people who are crushed and broken and wounded and hurting, people who are in need. And I want you to write this down if you're taking notes this morning. God wants to help people who need Him. But you have to know and acknowledge that you need Him. You have to. God doesn't swoop into our lives and against our will, help us out and and change us and cause us to be saved. He doesn't do that against our will. God wants you to want Him to need Him. He wants that from you. And one of the reasons why the people rejected Jesus was because, yeah, He's come to cause the blind to see and He's come to deliver the captives and help the oppressed. That all sounds good, but we don't think we're any of those things. We don't think we need to be enlightened. We don't need to know more of God's word. We're the people of God after all, they said. We don't need for anyone to come and bless us. But the nature of his mission, it's one of mercy and of compassion and of blessing. And everything Jesus did was about mercy and blessing and compassion because he wanted to help people to know God and to go to heaven one day. That's all he was about. And you say, well, why did people want to kill somebody like that? Because he didn't fit their preconceived notions. He may not fit your preconceived notions either. Notice secondly, as you look at this passage, the Bible says when Jesus was done reading, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, what would happen in a synagogue is that there would be a reading of Scripture. And then the person who had read Scripture would sit. Because when you took a, a seated position, you were taking the position of a teacher, and you would sit down and you would make some comments about what had been read. You'd make some comments and maybe deliver a lesson about this is a passage in the Old Testament that we need to think about today, if you're an Israelite, and here's what God wants for us. And so as Jesus goes to sit down, look at verse 21, the Bible says that every eye, excuse me, first thing it says in verse 20, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed upon him. And then in verse 21, Jesus says this, he says today, this scripture, Isaiah 61, has been fulfilled in your hearing. You shouldn't just overlook that statement, it is amazing. He is saying that literally 4,000 years of recorded history are all coming to a point in a little synagogue in an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. All of this is coming to a head in this one person, this humble man named Jesus. And he grew up with us. And we've known him since he was a little boy. And we've watched him grow. And he's the carpenter's son. But this is the one he's saying, I'm the one that is fulfilling this scripture today. And that word fulfill is interesting in Luke. Luke only uses it twice. You know, Matthew, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew's always telling you about how this passage was fulfilled and this event and that passage was fulfilled in that event. But Luke only does it twice. He does it here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and he does it again at the end in Luke 24, verse 44, after the resurrection of Jesus. All these things must be fulfilled in me, Jesus says. At the beginning and end, like bookends, What did Jesus come to do? He came to fulfill the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. That's what I'm here for. A ministry of mercy, a mission to come and to save those who are lost and those who are broken and those who are oppressed and those who are captives, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the acceptable year of the Lord. That's what I'm here for. And this is fulfilled in your hearing. And notice the response, the reaction, verse 22 The Bible says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? What does that mean? You know, there's some, there's some who believe that the Greek language here means that people were really confused about what Jesus says. And not that they were speaking well of him, but they were bearing witness. They said, okay, we heard and we understand what he just said. That's the sense and then the Bible goes on to say that they marvelled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And that's a curious expression, the gracious words. It could have to do with the way he spoke. He doesn't speak as a firebrand in this particular passage. He doesn't speak as someone who is, you know, thunder and lightning and fire and brimstone. He's not he's speaking in a gracious way. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. But more likely what they have to, what they're marveling about is the message itself. What does he say he's here for? What does he say he's all about? He's here to set the captives free. He's here to proclaim liberty and, and he's to, he's to uh, bring the acceptable in the, in the year of the Lord's favor. Incidentally, by the way, at the end of verse 19, you see that expression, the year of the Lord's favor or some of your translations say the acceptable year of the Lord probably a reference to the year of Jubilee. This won't add anything to the cost of the sermon. Every 50 years in the Old Testament system, every 50 years God said all debts get canceled. Doesn't matter what debt it is, all debts get canceled every 50 years. Wouldn't that be nice? You know, we have Congress and the president and people talking about canceling student loan debts and things like that. If that was already built into an economy where every 50 years Everything just gets wiped clean. Everybody gets a clean slate. That's what it was like in God's economy. That was what God designed Israel to do. By the way, that helped keep, you know, massive bubbles and expenses and things that helped keep them down because every 50 years, you don't take out a 30-year mortgage or you don't lend 30 years worth of money to somebody if the year of Jubilee is in three years. You just don't do it, right? And so everybody looked forward to the year of Jubilee because I've got this massive debt, but it's gonna be canceled. It's gonna be wiped away. And God's saying through Jesus, Debts are going to be wiped away. Forgiveness for everyone. The year of the Lord's favor is coming. And and people said, these are gracious words. This is wonderful. The Messiah is here. But then they took another look at Jesus and they said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's been coming to synagogue here in Nazareth for decades. We've seen him. His dad is a carpenter. Isn't this Joseph's son? We're, we're, we're going to really, you're expecting us to believe that you're the Messiah. You're expecting us to believe that, that you're the one that's come to, to cause the blind to see. You're the one that's going to do all this. That was their response to Him. That was their reaction. And Jesus responds to them because He knows what's in their hearts. Had to have been humbling to be in the presence of Jesus Because if you really knew who he was, you knew that he he could read your mind, literally. He can read your mind too, by the way. He knows what's in your heart. But he could read people's minds. John 2, 24 and 25 says, people didn't have to tell him what they were thinking because Jesus knew. And Jesus knew what these people were thinking. And so he responds in verses 23 and 24 with two Proverbs. These are not Proverbs from the Old Testament, but they're sayings. Kind of like we have in our our society today. A stitch in time saves nine. Maybe you don't know that one. Or just do it if you like Nike. But whatever. It's a proverb, okay? Jesus says, surely you're going to say this to me. Some of you are already thinking this in your mind. He says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, verse 23. Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. What does that mean? All right, Jesus. If you really can cause the blind to see, and if you really can deliver the oppressed, show us something. Prove it. If you've got a cure, if you're a physician and you've got medicine that can fix the problems and the wrongs of the world, show us, prove to us that you can do it. But you see, Jesus understood already that he's talking to people with preconceived notions. And people with preconceived notions very easily harden their hearts against the truth. It's still true today. You can harden your heart against Jesus Christ because he's not going where you wanna go or where you think he should go and he's not doing what you think he ought to do. And so physician heal yourself. I'm not gonna show you a sign, Jesus says. I'm not gonna try to prove to it because even if I did a miracle, you still wouldn't believe he knows what our hearts are like. And then the second proverb in verse 24 is this, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. He says it in Matthew and Mark this way. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. I've come home and there's a lot of baggage. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of experience that you have. Maybe you've noticed this with your own family. One of the things we've been trying to do in the month of November is to think about and to pray for our family members that need to know God better. And if you've paid attention, you know that because we have history with our families, they're always there always are things that kind of get in the way of trying to share the gospel and, and issues and historical events. And maybe sometimes you become a Christian and your family doesn't even believe. I really don't believe that you've changed. I don't think you're any different. A leper doesn't change its spots. Maybe they say something like that to you. And that's kind of what they're doing to Jesus, although there was nothing about him that needed to change. He had not ever sinned. He had not ever done anything that was wrong in God's eyes or man's except to not live up to their expectations. But a prophet's not without honor except in his own country, Jesus says. These are the things that are keeping you from believing me, he says. The fulfillment of this prophecy. And then Jesus does this, verses 25 through 27, and I have puzzled over this for years. Jesus gives two illustrations in verses 25 through 27 as he's talking to the synagogue crowd, the home crowd, the people that he grew up with, Jesus knows that he has run into a wall of unbelief. By the way, you know what unbelief is? Unbelief is literally when you say to God, I don't believe you. I don't believe that what you're saying is true. I don't believe you. Maybe you've run into a wall of unbelief in your own life. That's what Jesus does here. And then Jesus decides, because he is the master teacher, because he is the son of God, and he preaches absolutely stunningly perfect sermons, he gives two illustrations. The first illustration is about Elijah and the widow from 1 Kings chapter 17. And the second illustration is about Elisha and Naaman. Both the widow and Naaman are from Syria, not from Israel. And this enrages his audience just listen to what he says. He's just telling the truth. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. By the way, who Jesus come to help. He came to help widows. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when heavens were shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah, the prophet, the man of God was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There it is again. I've come to set at liberty the oppressed and the captives. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted, recovery of the sight to the blind. I want you to remember, he says, back in the Old Testament days, lots of widows in Israel, but Elijah was sent to Syria. And then he brings up another illustration in verse 27. There were many lepers. Who did Jesus come to help? He came to help those who were broken and oppressed and crushed, widows and lepers, people who were outcast, people who were outside of the norm. I came to help them. He says, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And if you remember your Old Testament history from Second Kings 5, you want to know how Naaman got cleansed? Naaman listened to a little slave girl from his own house. Here's the mighty Syrian general, Naaman, who has leprosy. And a little slave girl in his own house says, if only my master would go to the man of God and he he would find cleansing, he would find healing. And Naaman listened to what that little girl said without any other signs, without any other evidence. He believed her and he went down to Israel and he found Elisha and he was cleansed of his leprosy. Jesus runs into a wall of unbelief, and so he starts talking about people who did believe. And they weren't from Israel, they were from Syria. They were from the wrong place, they were the wrong kind of people, they did not fit into the preconceived notions of the people that Jesus was preaching to, but Jesus told them the truth. And here's what puzzles me. Why didn't he pick an easier couple of illustrations? Why couldn't Jesus have talked about people in Israel who were healed? Why couldn't he have softened what he said just a little bit? Why couldn't he have just backed off and maybe talked about David and God's mercy toward David, you know, after the thing with Bathsheba? Or maybe talked about uh, Abraham and how when Abraham lied about Sarah, God still showed Abraham mercy and grace. And those things would have been a little bit more palatable for the people that Jesus was preaching to, the home crowd, to hear, maybe. So why did Jesus pick two illustrations about Syria about this foreign country and by the way if you still look at a map today the nation of Israel that's there and Syria they're still enemies still even to this day historically for centuries they've been enemies at odds with one another they hated the Syrians why pick those two I'll tell you why because Jesus cannot abide unbelief. And if you're gonna break down those walls, sometimes you've gotta use illustrations and you've gotta say things that are gonna penetrate people's hearts. And that's what he's trying to do. What he wants is for people not to say, nice sermon preacher, good job Jesus. You're gonna be a good preacher one day. You sure do have promise. He doesn't want the people at home to say that about him. He wants people to know God. He wants people to know who God is and he wants people to hear and understand that God's mercy and God's grace is not just for the exclusive people of Israel, it's for everybody. And if they don't get those things, then Jesus has failed in his mission as the Messiah. And because of that, he chooses a hard illustration, a difficult thing for them to hear, and he says it anyway. He's putting them in a crisis is what he's doing. And the crisis is this. Either you're gonna listen to what I'm saying and what God's word says, by the way, nothing he said could be, you know, controverted. Nothing he said could be, content- no, 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 that didn't happen with Elisha. Yes, it did. It was in their scriptures. But what he's doing is he's putting them in a crisis and they can either believe or they can become angry. And when people have hard hearts and when people have preconceived ideas, one of two things happens when you really, really, really put a fine point on it, you confront them with the truth, one of two things really happens. Either they back off and humble themselves and say, wait a minute, I was wrong. Or they get angry and they act in anger. Those are the only two options. And I want you to hear me this morning. There are some things in this book that go against your preconceived notions. There are some things in this book that go against what you have in your mind as the way things should be and must be and always are. There are some things in this book that will challenge you. And when it comes to a fine point and you are put on the spot, answer me, yes or no, is this God's will? You got one of two choices. You can either back down and say, (coughs) God's right, and I'm wrong. Or you're going to get angry. Those are the only options. And that's what Jesus does with this illustration. Elijah and Elisha, they they blessed the people of Syria because those were the people who would, would listen to God. Those were the people that would do what God wanted. Guess which one they chose? The Bible says... When the crowd heard these things, look at verse 28. All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. You know, we came together this morning to worship God. We came together to think about God's blessing in our lives and to hear from God's word. It would be really strange for us to end this assembly by trying to push the preacher off a cliff, you know? (laughs) When I was in preaching school, they talked to us about moving sermons And by that, they meant not sermons that emotionally connect with the heart, but sermons that after you preach the sermon, you got to just pack up your house and move because people won't tolerate that kind of preaching. (laughs) That's what Jesus does here. And he does it to his home crowd. He does it to Nazareth. He does it to the synagogue where the people who knew him and had watched him grow up where they knew him best. And their response is, it says in verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town. This is not just a knee jerk kind of thing. This is deliberate. What should we do with the preacher? What should we do with this man? Let's drive him off a cliff. And so they rise up, and as a synagogue, as a congregation, I mean, I'm thinking of myself, if I were in this crowd, I would be kind of maybe second guessing as we got closer to the cliff. How about you? You know, maybe, maybe we're being a little hasty here. Maybe we need to hear more from him, but nope, they're mad. And I mean, they're really mad. And they take him out to the edge of town where there's a cliff and they are intending fully to push him off this cliff. That's their, that's their whole purpose. That's their whole design. This is how Jesus' first sermon goes in Luke. This is how his first sermon ends in Luke. The people are so mad at him, they wanted to throw him off the cliff, but passing through their midst, Jesus went away, it says in verse 30. It doesn't tell you anything other than that. He just, was it a miracle? Possibly. Was it just a convenient way that he was able to escape and people didn't see where he was? Possibly. Doesn't tell us. He just went his way. It wasn't his time. They attempted to kill him. I want you to appreciate about Jesus that when he preached and when he taught, people did not always pat him on the back and say, oh, we love to hear what you're saying. Wonderful sermon, Jesus. Couldn't have said it better myself. People didn't always say that about him. Sometimes they got so mad at him, they wanted to kill him. And finally they did. At the end, after three years of this, Those rulers in Jerusalem finally got their hands on him and they were willing to do anything, even make up stories about him just so that they could put him to death. Why? Because they had hard hearts and unbelief. I don't believe you. I don't believe you're the son of God. I don't believe that you really were sent on this mission. I don't believe. What are your preconceived notions? That you believe... God is all about this and God wants to do that. We need to open the pages of Scripture and let God's Word inform and instruct us. And we need to have this attitude, listen to me carefully, the attitude that's willing to say, I was wrong. You're right, Lord. I was wrong. There are four passages in Luke I want you to think about when it comes to the ministry and mission of Jesus. Here they are. Luke 2, 49, Jesus said, I must be about my father's business. That's what he came to do. In Luke chapter 6, verse 26, he said, woe unto you when all people speak well of you. If we're doing things the way God desires, not everybody is going to appreciate that. They certainly did not with Jesus. Luke 19, verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And finally, Luke 23, 34, as they were nailing him to the cross, finally getting what they wanted, he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Those four passages, those four verses encapsulate the ministry, the life, and the death of Jesus. Why did he come to earth? He came because he wants to bless your life. Why did people get so mad at him then? They got mad at him because he wasn't what they thought he should be. He wasn't what they expected. You know, sometimes it's important to remember people love the truth when it enlightens them. But they hate the truth when it accuses them. And so it was with Jesus. As long as they were being enlightened, as long as they were learning new things, love the truth. But when the truth accused them, that's when they turned on him. May it always be the case with us that we're willing to humble ourselves and admit, I've been wrong, but God is right. He's always right. That's part and parcel of living the Christian life. Maybe you haven't obeyed the gospel yet. Maybe part of the reason you haven't obeyed the gospel is because you've got some preconceived ideas about what somebody needs to do to be saved, what somebody needs to do to come to Christ. Maybe you haven't obeyed the gospel because you're you're still wondering, is this really God's way? If it's written in this book, it's God's way. Come to Jesus Christ. Believe on Him. Don't say, I don't believe you. Believe on Him. Confess His name. Repent of your sin and be baptized. That's how somebody outside of Christ comes into a relationship with Him. That's His Word. That's His way. If we can help you do that this morning, if we can pray with you and pray for you, won't you come forward while together we stand and while we sing?